netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for listening to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our subject for this episode is a little bit different than our usual podcast, but covering something that will definitely be impacting artists and facilities moving forward. It's a discussion about legal and policy issues concerning AI, as well as a look at the state and future of governmental oversight and regulation of technology in the United States, EU, and elsewhere. Our guest for this episode is Brandy Nonicki. She's director of the Citrus Policy Lab, an associate research professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, as well as host of Tech Hype, a podcast that debunks misunderstandings around emerging tech. Several discussion groups and mailing lists I've been on have been chatting about the recent decision, the Anderson case, which concerns copyright and generative AI issues. So I think the podcast is especially timely considering the discussions on those groups. That case is one of a couple cases which Mike and Brandy talk about. So let's go ahead and cross to that conversation now. Thanks, John. And Brandy, I've got to say, since you and I spoke together at uh, SIDGRAPH this year, I have been so looking forward to hearing more about what you had to say, because I found your talk at uh, SIGGRAPH just brilliant. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So look, there are a lot of things that we can talk about, and I'm looking forward to covering a few of those areas. I'm going to start, if we could, on some of the discussion about where the law kind of sits right now. We then mm-hmm. might have a look at where the legislation or the government uh, governance and uh, areas of, I guess, recommendation are happening at the moment in the U.S., And then we'll extend, if we can, to just having a look at what's happening in the EU and in Europe, because I think that's going to be uh, significant. But to start back where I suggested, um, there are a couple of really prominent lawsuits that seem to be happening at the moment around generative AI and the idea of whether it's legal or not to scrape training data from publicly available sources to use in generative AI. Where, Where do you see this sitting at the moment? Yeah, these are two, there are two really prominent cases that are quite interesting and they take two different approaches to this issue. So the first one I want to talk about is Anderson uh, versus Midjourney, DeviantArt and Stable Diffusion. And in that case, an artist last name Anderson, and the lawsuit was originally Anderson with um, some other co-plaintiffs suing, stating that their artwork had been wrongfully scraped from the internet and used to train these models. Now their argument is that the model can then create derivative works, which is a very important term um, because derivative works would essentially devalue original works. Because now, for example, you might have the market flooded with these derivative works that then confuses the marketplace. You know, Maybe individuals don't know what is a, a real Anderson versus a synthetically generated one. And then also just because there are more, you know, the value would go down. And in that case, it's quite interesting because um, Anderson et al. really isn't Anderson et al. anymore. It's just Anderson suing because Anderson had copyrighted some of their works. Uh, However, it does seem that case is not going to move forward with much success for Anderson, even though they own a copyright of their work, just the fact of placing it on the internet and it being picked up in this data scraping is insufficient to demonstrate that the platforms are actually recreating uh, their works. Okay, so so let's just, just to simplify it for an artist that might be listening. So if I take a picture that is uh, generated by another artist and I change a few pixels, that doesn't give me new copyright over the work, right? That's, that's, I'm still, you know, I can't just sort of take something, touch up a little bit in the left-hand corner and say it's a new work of art. Um, and that whole idea of copyright is, for our understanding, if you do create an original work that's not just, as I say, right. touching up somebody else's, does copyright come into existence the second that I finish that? Is that how it works? No, unfortunately, I mean, when you're when you create a work, you you must file for a copyright on that work. You can't just assume that because you made it that you have the full rights over it. Now, whether or not changing a couple of pixels is sufficient enough, the other side of a derivative work is a quote transformative work. 
So this is where protections come into play. So if I take somebody's very known art, you know, very well-known artwork and I change some things about it for parody or social commentary, well, I have transformed it enough that now it's essentially a new piece. And then you also think about does, you know, in the, in the area of parody, does the new thing I've created, can it actually convey its meaning, my free expression, if it doesn't build off of that original piece? So you can think more about the transformative nature. Now, the issue so, that we have. Go I was going to say, because the significant thing in this case, then, that you're referencing is that those works from Anderson were actually copyrighted. So that wasn't just that somebody made something and said, I posted it on the internet and you took it and you violated my copyright. They'd actually copyrighted them. Yes, they had. And now only the pieces that Anderson had copyrighted are moving forward. Um, and the, the the big challenge here is that whether or not once those images go into this deep learning model, you know, generative AI model, is it really replicating that work? Or is it pulling from various types of artwork and creating new artwork that has a similar aesthetic or feel to that original artist? And in a semi-related issue, is it not also the case that it's been ruled that you can't copyright an AI-generated uh, output from something like Midjourney? That is that is correct. Right now, um, you you don't you don't copyright. And actually, if you look at their terms of service, uh, they you know OpenAI will say we do not want to copyright over any of this work. Um, they they're giving up everything. They're just saying it's free. Whatever you create, it's open. It's in the world. Uh, so yeah, that's the other side of it. I'd love to get into the Sarah Silverman case too, if you'd like. Yeah, no, I'd love to hear about that one. Yeah, that's the second one that you referenced. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and I, I want to bring this up because now the Sarah Silverman case against OpenAI is more. It's it's a different legal argument. So in that one, they're looking at whether or not you just using. Uh, copyrighted material without the permission of the copyright holder, regardless of whether or not that generative AI model is now producing works that are very similar. So do you get that? It's more pre rather than post going through uh, a generative AI system. Uh, so their argument is that these entities illegally um, pulled in their copyrighted material uh, to train a model. So it's the idea it, yeah. that that it's sort of using your work, yes. Rather, yeah. And in that rather respect, than reproducing I, works that look like yours. Right. So, if somebody posts their work on the internet at the moment, just in the current understanding, um, mm -hmm. it may or may not be used, and it may or may not produce work that is similar. That's like one whole aspect of it. I guess there's like at a legal end. There's also a, I guess a corporate. Um, attitudinal thing where we're seeing some companies like Adobe saying, well, maybe mm -hmm. we're legally fine, but we're going to produce our own training data or have training data that we have absolute rights to so that our generative AI stuff can be used with confidence. But even here, as we said earlier, if I use that to generate my logo, even though it's come from a sort of secure or if you like walled off training data set, I wouldn't be able to copyright that logo if I made a logo of it to then use that. Is that correct? I don't know, actually, if that is correct. Um, okay. That's such a good question because, uh, I, yeah. There's uh, a notion, example, isn't there? You could, a... you could write uh, code to generate um, and, you know, a logo for you and then try to copyright or trademark, be trademark that logo. This is such a, a term, good question, Mike, you're making me think. Because there's an interesting copyright sort of notion, isn't there, which is this lack of a guiding human hand. Can you explain what that means or where that comes into this discussion? Yeah, copyrighted works are by human beings. Um, there's actually a really fascinating case from years ago about um, a primate, remember this, that had taken a selfie and whether or not that primate owned the rights to their selfie. And in that case, it was determined, no, it did not. It did not retain the rights to the selfie photograph that it had taken. So it's really about um, a human being or, or an institution, a corporation, um, because corporations also in the U.S. have rights just like people do. Um, 
for example, in the case Citizens United that confirmed that companies have First Amendment rights. Uh, so yeah, either a human being or an institution can copyright content. Okay, well, let's switch the the discussion more to the the government's uh, governance and sort of uh, legal uh, slash yeah. advice level. <laughs> so in the US, there's been a few things that have happened. A lot of it um, has been a reaction, I guess, to these things being in the press. There does seem to be, I think you made this point Absolutely. actually, that, that whenever something's popular in the press, politicians seem to uh, like getting behind a microphone yes, to discuss exactly. it. exactly. Where do you think their staffers are looking for that next hot thing there? <laughs> their representative needs to be focused on. I mean, mainstream media is what they're they're looking at. And I've been joking actually lately that in society right now, essentially generative AI and these systems like ChatGPT are kind of like a gateway drug to AI. <laughs> People don't understand that they've been actually engaging with algorithmic systems for decades, but now all of a sudden you have generative AI, you know, this really user-friendly interface, and now everybody's talking about it. And for people like me who have been working in this space around AI governance for, you know, about 10 years or so, it's been pretty interesting to see everybody just really only focusing on generative AI and not on AI more broadly. Oh, I completely agree. I had somebody asking me about uh, whether they thought AI was going to be used in films. And I was like, we've been using it for years. And then somebody yes. <laughs> followed up with, do you think that it's a big issue over crowd replacement that now we'll be able to have crowd replacements? And I'm like, Lord of the Rings came out yes. <laughs> 10, 20 years ago, whatever, and won the Oscars. Yes, and they were using crowd replacement for decades. So yeah, it is, it is extraordinary. But to that end, there has been a couple of significant things at a federal level. So in the US, there was the National AI Initiative Act that was about... 2020, I think it went into law in yes. 21. Could you tell us what yes. that is? Yeah, the National AI Initiative Act established the National AI Initiative Office within the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And this office has a pretty large remit. Um, its goals are to help guide the federal government in its own procurement and development and use of AI-enabled technologies. It also uh, was charged with ensuring that NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, developed an AI risk assessment framework, which I, I know we'll likely get into uh, more detail on. Uh, another was the National AI Research Resource uh, and its corresponding task force. And that group was looking at, uh, you know, the private sector has most of the power in this space at this time, right? They have the compute power, they have the data, they have the models to be able to build these really robust AI systems. How do we ensure that the public sector, including academic institutions, are able to also access this transformative technology? And so that task force has been working um, for you know the past couple of years. And then there's also the National AI Advisory Committee. And that's a multi-stakeholder committee with representatives from academia, civil society, industry, um, all thinking about how to best guide the federal government's uh, development and use and oversight over AI. So if we go back to the first of these, which was the AI Initiative Office coming out of the uh, AI Initiative Act, that that doesn't actually force anyone to do anything, right? It's not yeah. a a mandatory, yeah. To explain what that means, it's not. There's no obligation. That's yeah, it's not a binding. Yeah. No, it has no authority. Um, that entity, it, it can. Um, and essentially, when these come out, the National AI Initiative Office has followed through and has worked with these other federal departments and agencies to complete what was asked of them in the National AI Initiative Act. Even the NIST AI Risk Management Framework which is a risk framework that's used um, by developers to help guide their responsible development of AI systems, that too is a completely voluntary framework. No company, no developer in the United States is required to implement the NIST AI risk management framework. Now let's compare that to the EU really quickly. So the EU and the EU AI Act, that will actually compel companies to do something called AI conformity assessments which is essentially a risk assessment. In order to enter the EU market, you need to complete your conformity assessment and provide a report to the EU. Well, I'm going to hit the EU in a second, but before we do, there's a couple more points I just want to hit in the US. So, mm -hmm. so I think it's a really good point that you make, and I am really keen for that exact reason to follow up with the EU. But 
Um, so the the risk management, I mean, I think the acronym is AIRMF, right? Um, anyway. That's correct. Yep. The NIST AIRMF. They focus on four things, don't they? That's governance, mapping, measuring, and managing. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, like, what do you, how could you explain that to somebody that's not familiar with that? Like, what is their kind of, I guess, approach to this whole issue? Yeah, exactly. So the NIST AIRMF, you're exactly right. It's the Govern, Map, Measure, and Manage. Uh, so essentially they look at, has an institution put in place a governance mechanism? Do they have a system in place within their organization? Do they have teams where they can actually look at whether or not they're developing these AI systems in a responsible way? Do they have an auditing team? Do they have a continuous monitoring team? Do they have a policy team that's making sure that any new laws or regulations that are coming up in this space that the company can comply with any of those requirements? And if 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 I could, and then the next part of the NIST AI RMF, of this idea of um, now mapping, measuring, managing. It's identifying potential risks um, that your AI system holds in society. And also, I mean, for the environment as another risk, uh, measuring those potential risks and then managing them. So once you identify the risk, are you doing an appropriate um, job actually managing them? And I, and I know I've been going on a little bit here, Mike, but one thing I want to bring up that's really important, really, really important is that they have manage, managing risk, not mitigating, not eliminating, but managing risk. And the NIST um, body, they put out a report on defining bias in AI systems. And we've often heard, especially in mainstream media or others who might be listening who have more expertise in this field, of course, we fully understand the, the problems of algorithmic bias, and this is something that needs to be addressed. In this report, they took stock of, well, what are actual the types of biases that can occur in algorithmic systems? And they came up with three categories. One, human biases, uh, or implicit biases, so to say, which we all carry. Institutional biases, so obvious, you know, the U.S. is rife with historic biases, Um, which can affect how data has been collected that's now used in these systems. And then the third is statistical bias. Now, the really important point that I want to make here is that if anybody says to you that their system is bias-free, they don't know what they're talking about because you cannot simultaneously address all three of those biases because if you address sometimes one, you're going to cause bias in another. So it's more of, okay, well, what biases are most important for you to address in your system? And what are you doing to manage those biases? So what I wanted to pick up on here is a point that's kind of related, which is for us to have confidence in a system or to feel like it's managed and being able to have its risk well explored, there's a sense that I should have transparency. But as I understand it, because of, well, basically the the law is going to bump into things if it tries to have AI companies expose the data and the models under sort of First Amendment laws in the US. Um, So it's not the case, for example, that you could just say, well, I'm a bit nervous about this system, but that's okay because we can get full transparency to see how it works and what training data it had. Yeah, that's a really good point. That is something that companies have put forward, claiming that they cannot share either because of proprietary reasons or because it's compelled speech, which is the First Amendment claim. But, you know, the White House issued earlier this year the voluntary AI commitments, which all of the large uh, AI companies signed on to, where they have voluntarily committed to providing more of these transparency reports. It's also not just an issue of them not wanting to share their models because of proprietary reasons, but also there are serious cybersecurity concerns. Um, because if if they were to share all of this information and perhaps the model waits, somebody else might be able to take that and rebuild the system and not have in place the appropriate safeguards that we need. Okay. And in this discussion then, um, there's one other, before we uh, sort of move on, there's one other bit that came up in my research, which was the Clo- Coalition for Content uh, Providence, the C2PA. Uh, well, it's, Love them. <laughs> yeah, 
So tell me what that is. Actually, I, I got the name wrong, didn't it? It's content, providence, and authenticity, right? That's right. Yep. Um, so the website is c2pa.org. Now, uh, this is essentially, again, a voluntary commitment of these companies that build generative AI systems that they will uh, essentially put a cryptographic hash on anything that is created. So think of that as like a digital watermark that you and I can't see, but a computer can see, and we can never remove it. So if that were to happen, anything generated from MidJourney or from ChatGPT or Dolly or whatever, it would have this cryptographic hash on it. Now, when you upload that content to a platform, it could actually flag it. They could say, look, we see this hash is here, no value judgment on what's actually been created, no, no judgment there, just want to alert you that this has been synthetically generated. And there's two important things about that. The White House Voluntary AI Commitments, that is in there. Those companies, by signing on to those Voluntary AI Commitments, say that they will do this, put these um, sort of authentication watermark cryptographic hashes on. And then also in the EU, I'm sorry, in the... Um, White House uh, executive order on AI that was released on uh, October 30th of this year. Uh, in there, it says that they are asking NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, to continue to develop standards on what should these cryptographic hashes technically be. And then also, how do you portray them to end users in a way that will be most effective? If I could take a step back for a second. I was on a panel in uh, in Europe a little while ago. The point came up was we we probably have the technology to make a lot of this stuff more trans well more transparent in what you just described in terms of the cryptomatic hashing, but also more uh, open for confidence in what we're seeing. But that the question really comes to like how much is society keen to spend the money to get that? In other words. I want security. I just don't want to pay for it. I want authenticity. I just don't want to pay for it. Um, do you think that you sense from your like because you you just mentioned executive orders as one you know this is happening as we speak kind of thing. Do you sense that that's changing, or do you still think we're kind of up against a, a concern that well everybody agrees with it in principle, but nobody wants to spend an extra buck for what it might cost to do this or implement it. Yeah, I think especially if we're, let, let's just take the authenticity of content instead of just transparency writ large. I think that there is a growing consensus globally that people want to be able to know whether or not what they are viewing is real. Now, of course, if you go to uh, watch a new action thriller movie, you know, you're going to go in kind of knowing that uh, this content has been generated by an AI system, right? It, it makes sense in that context. But if I'm on a social media platform and it's on the eve of an election, which we are in the United States, uh, the 2024 presidential election, and I'm seeing candidates' videos posted, maybe some of them doing things that are very inappropriate, I want to know the provenance of that content. And, and I think that there will be pressure placed on those companies to do that, to put in those hashes and sort of build it into their business model. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. You recently wrote that some of the stuff that's happening in the US, uh, while still voluntary, uh, I think you described it as being a game changer. Can you refer to <laughs> like what that was that you thought was a game changer and why you thought it was a game changer? I know it sounds like I'm so optimistic, but I'm actually so pessimistic that it just comes out as optimism. Um, well, in the United States, I mean, in, in the void of any comprehensive federal legislation, now let's, I mean, the, the executive order, it, it's not, it's not bipartisan legislation. Essentially, it's relying on the authority, the established authority through other laws uh, for those agencies to be able to execute on that executive order. Now, there are probably some stronger things that we can implement um, and kind of force or request agencies to do, but we would need that bipartisan legislation. So essentially where we don't have that bipartisan legislation, the, the best thing we can do right now is to put pressure on those companies to do better. And I mean, I'm not naive. I know that they're going to present themselves in a certain light especially in their transparency reports. I get that. They're not probably going to test for some things because if they test for some things 
and there is a liability there and they voluntarily report on that vulnerability, that now makes them have a new liability. So I do have concerns that the companies might not actually audit their systems for some vulnerabilities because they won't want to report on them. Uh, I, I think, oh, one other thing I want to say though quickly is Sam Altman, you know, after he released, uh, you know, heads up OpenAI, released ChatGPT, went before Congress about immediately after he introduced that saying, look, I know what I've released into the world is this very powerful tool that will cause harm in society. I want you all to know members of Congress. I, I know this and I'm the best person to be able to oversee this technology. Which, I mean, we need to be skeptical of that, right? Because he's essentially saying, members of Congress, please let me write the test by which I'm going to be graded. Yeah. I know it better than you do. And I also fear that this could create uh, some monopolies because you wouldn't have open source generative AI systems. You would just have a few small players building out these systems and with you know, pretty much a lack of transparency. Yeah, there's been even discussion about whether some of these things are very strategic to entrench large companies in their existing positions and make it harder. Though I, on one of your uh, terrific uh, Tech Hype podcasts, you actually pointed out that there have been uh, 14,000 AI tech startups in the US in the last mm -hmm. year alone, right? Which I found fascinating. So clearly- Yeah, but also wink, wink. I mean, they're often not actually AI. <laughs> they uh, just yeah. call themselves AI, I think, which is also another challenge of, you know, getting back to this discussion that we've had about definitions. I mean, how do we actually define artificial intelligence? Yeah, but this is a great point. In fact, I rarely use the term myself. I tend to talk about machine learning and the specific as do I, As do I, yeah. but when I'm talking with members of Congress and, and, and the California legislature, I will say in my meetings to them, machine learning, machine learning, machine learning, and they always say AI back. And yeah. actually on November um, 12th or 13th, I'm actually going to be giving a briefing before uh, members of Congress and their staffers on what is AI. That'd be an interesting room to be in. I'd, I, I'd, uh, I'd welcome hearing what, what you think. Uh, well, Okay, let's ask, what in, in a simplest terms would you describe AI as if you were being asked by a member of Congress, like a non-technical person, to give a, a, a clear definition of it? I would say machine learning is statistical pattern recognition or correlations in data. Sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think just go back to your simple uh, statistics courses of logistic or linear regression. Um, I also find it, you know, pretty interesting. A lot of our our young students, they're they're really hyped about getting into artificial intelligence, and you try to get them to enroll in statistics, and they don't quite see the connection yet. But right, the base form of artificial oh, yeah. intelligence is a lot of this pattern recognition and regression statistics. Oh, absolutely, yeah. To that end, though. You said that you're, we've been talking about federal, but I, I did make, you did make it, I don't want to just not skip over this point because I do want to discuss that more, but you made a great point at SIDGRAPH, which is in fact in the US, partly due to the, um, how can I put this, as a, an outsider to the US, the slightly political <laughs> uh, polarization of the American political system at the federal level, that the state laws could be seriously significant moving forward and to not ignore those and just look at federal laws in the US. Yeah, I think, you know, when you say political, I'll say just functional. Okay. I'll just say it for you. I don't, I don't be rude. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I mean, look, I'm laughing. It's no laughing matter. It's really quite awful um, how Congress is so polarized right now, which means that states are pushing forward with their own legislation. And um, even in the state of California, there have been a few pieces of legislation introduced. Now they haven't moved forward, um, but I do suspect them to be reintroduced. Uh, now, one challenge of this is that if states continue to push forward on AI-related legislation, you're going to have this sort of piecemeal landscape where it will make it, and I'm sympathetic to the companies, it will make it harder for them to comply with all of these different laws and regulations. At the same time, we do know that these industry groups are shopping around their own legislation to state legislatures. Uh, asking that, you know, giving them draft language to adopt. So the state issue is going to be interesting 
But of course, so much of this stuff exists on the net, which knows no boundaries. So let me just tie those threads together for a second, because you were discussing there between state and federal, obviously different lawmakers. Uh, Mm -hmm. You also mentioned the EU. We also mentioned Mm -hmm. what is AI. So if we switch our attention now to the EU, which is Mm -hmm. actually looking at bringing in laws on this, which is, as Mm -hmm. you pointed out, different to recommendations, there are sort of three levels of this in the EU, which I don't think most people maybe are not so familiar with. Um, There's the EU Commission, the EU Council, the EU Parliament, and each of those bodies have themselves different definitions of what AI is. So the commission very specifically refers to machine learning, but also logic and knowledge-based approaches. Uh, They discuss predictions, recommendations, and decisions. When you change to the council, the EU council, they start talking about levels of autonomy and knowledge-based systems, and they start explicitly mentioning generative AI. And then when you go to the parliament, they define AI differently again. I mean, it's similar, but they're talking about varying levels of autonomy, again, predictions, recommendations. It's almost as if uh, the EU body, which is formulating stuff that's going to go into law maybe in 2026, uh, is itself struggling to just come up with these definitions. So, so not just in the US where you have a state and federal issue, but in the EU, which is going to bring in laws, it isn't a clear-cut case as to what they're actually trying to get a handle on. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I'm glad that you brought this up and they're, they're going through the tripartite negotiations uh, and they will need to hammer that out for the final version. And actually, in one of the versions I have right now, essentially a lot of those keywords you said are included in that definition. I can see right here, it says an AI system means a system that is designed to operate with elements of autonomy. Okay. So we have the one uh, we have one on a machine or human provided data and inputs, and it infers how to achieve a given set of objectives using machine learning and or logic, which was another def- right another definition that yep. you gave. Um, and outputs such as content, either generative AI systems, predictions, recommendations, or decisions influencing the environments with which the AI system interacts. So in this yeah. version, I can already see it's kind of trying to pull together the different definitions. Well, that's, I think, the council's version that you're quoting there, which explicitly Ah, excludes rule-based decision-making systems. And for some of the general public, they would see a rule decision-making system as being AI. I don't think you and I would, but they would just, you know, like a a branching tree sort of expert system would appear to perhaps Joe Public as being AI in this broad definition. So it it is a really complicated problem. Yeah. And even if you ask two experts who work in AI, you ask them to define what it is and what it is not, you'll get different answers. Okay. So the process that the EU is going to go through is the commission is going to send stuff to the council and the parliament is going to have these negotiations that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. They'll finalize the act maybe next year and it'll probably- Yeah. I think they're shooting for the end of this year to try. Oh, really? Um, Okay. Yeah. We'll see. But it's probably not going to come into law until, what, 26, beginning of 26 is kind of a guess? That's right. So, yeah, they'll pass it and then there will be that time period for them to help define what does compliance with this act look like. It's essentially the same thing with the EU GDPR, helping to guide and then enforcement will start to happen a few years later. But this is compliance with enforcement. This is not the US model. That's correct. Yeah, it's compliance with enforcement. You will be fined. You will not be able to deploy your AI-enabled tool in the EU market unless you are compliant. So there's no way that this is not going to directly affect US companies that are operating on a global stage. You're right. And that's what we refer to as the Geneva effect, right? That the EU laws, because uh, you know they're they're able to capitalize on their very large market, the companies want to enter that market, so they're going to be compliant. It's inefficient for them to have bespoke systems being set up. We saw this with the EU GDPR, where we just saw companies roll out data protection, regardless of whether or not the end user was accessing their service from an EU country. Now, I have a very strong feeling that we're going to see the same thing with U.S. firms that are developing AI tools that they'll seek to, you know, that compliance with the EU AI Act. And one would hope that if they were to find any risks, they would implement those risk um, management strategies 
not only where they deploy it in the EU, but also elsewhere. Uh, that also, you know, in the state of California, we have the California effect um, across the United States. So when California adopts legislation, um, many of the companies are headquartered in California. It's a very large economy. Uh, it would be an unwise decision for a large company to not be compliant with the largest economy in the United States. And so we see ex exactly the same thing. That's why legislation that's being proposed in the state of California to regulate AI is so important. So I'm not an expert in EU, but I've been lucky enough to hear some lectures and stuff from colleagues in Finland, actually, who um, are obviously deeply uh, looking at this. I think it'd be worthwhile, therefore, if it's going to take on a kind of a global um, uh, effect to just sort of discuss what this proposed law is going to kind of do or look like. So as I understand it from, again, not being an expert, it's a kind of a risk-based characterization of AI system at its core. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. And it's risk based off of use cases. So where the AI is being applied, not necessarily that um, one type of AI is more or less risky than another, which is a little bit different from the US. For example, um, it's clear that federal government is quite concerned about generative AI systems in particular, even though we know that other types of machine learning can cause, you know, very consequential risks for society. And for the EU, like I said, it's more about these use cases. So whether you're applying a simple linear regression model or you're applying uh, maybe a deep learning model in a certain area, it more matters what area you're applying it to right. and so whether I, or not applying it there would affect people's rights. Yes. Yeah, so if I apply an approach to a very serious problem, the very serious problem is what we're talking about, not the underlying tech that got us there. Exactly. Now, here in the US, though, the NIST AI Risk Management Framework, we have a team at UC Berkeley, a uh, collaboration between the Citrus Policy Lab, which I direct, and the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, CLTC, where we have developed a profile on generative AI, general purpose AI systems, also sometimes referred to as foundation models. Yep. And we're, we're actually building a profile using the NIST AI Risk Management Framework of, well, how do you identify and mitigate risks? in these systems, just as the systems are, regardless of how they're being used and what they're being used for. So uh, my Finnish uh, colleagues pointed out that there's actually ambiguity in the UE, uh, EU um, framework, but this isn't actually ambiguity because of negligence. This is ambiguity because it kind of works in its favor to not try and nail everything down to uh, very specific technical things because it's moving so quickly. So yeah, exactly. Um, that's that's definitely a fear that I have in the United States. Now, in Ca the state of California, our governor issued an executive order. Uh, now, in title, they said AI, but if you if you look at it, it's purely focused on generative AI, which to me is very short-sighted. Why are we just focusing on generative AI systems when we should be focusing on AI systems writ large with generative AI being one of those AI systems? So I personally like the EU approach a lot better of keeping it more open, more loose, because the technology is going to change over time. And if you bind it, you know, like bound your, your policy to one technology, it's going to be quickly out of date. Yeah. And or it could be gamified around, if you know what I mean. Like you could Oh, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's discuss this. So the the EU approach, which again is deliberately not super specific for the purposes, or as we'll discuss in a moment, has, as I understand it, sort of like minimal risk, uh, limited risk, high risk, and unacceptable risk. And so mm -hmm. those are sort of categorizations. And the notion, if I understand it correctly, and stop me, Brandy, if I'm wrong here, is I am meant to assess my end use application, as you pointed out for where it falls in those categories, rather than somebody else telling me my application is in one of those categories at some governmental level. Yes, exactly. The The onus is on the developer to the developer or the downstream user. So if we're talking about generative AI, it's not only the open AI that had created the generative AI system, but anybody else who's building something on top of that, the downstream user, they would also have to demonstrate 
whether or not if they're applying it in a certain area that where it falls on that risk continuum. Now, one thing that's really interesting is that, um, as I understand it, the EU AI Act will also ask for those generative AI companies to say, you know, where their models should be used, you know, where they're best suited and where, where they are not to be used, where they could go awry. So then you could say a downstream user that saw that they shouldn't be using it in this area, then they went on to use it in that area, the liability would fall on that downstream user. Okay. So these are obviously characterized in the various articles of the proposed legislation. And rather than going to that, let's look at some of the examples of those four, because I think that might help people that are listening. So at the top end, unacceptable risk by this EU kind of guideline, whatever the tech is behind it would be things like, uh, well, dangerous uses of facial recognition, dark mm -hmm. pattern AI, very manipulative uses, social scoring type examples. These are things that if you assessed that that's what my end use was, that would be unacceptable and thus prohibited effectively under the, uh, the EU system. Yes, that is correct. Now, there are some carve-outs. So for the facial recognition, law enforcement can use in certain circumstances. Um, but yes. Right. Okay. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the stuff that's minimal risk, where all you mm -hmm. would need is maybe a code of conduct, is things like spam filters or video games, things that are seen to be, well, clearly you want a code of conduct so you don't have, I don't know, um, video games with rape content or something. But notwithstanding that, you are talking about things that are deemed to be, as I say, minimal risk. So that's that's sort of either end of our sort of four four ranges. Is that, a, is that how you understand it? Yes. Okay, so let's let's go up one level because I think this is really interesting. At the next level, which is limited risk, so you need to be transparent about what's going on. That's where one of my areas falls in, which is deep fakes. Um, but it's also emotion recognition systems or chatbots, these kind of things. And I find that really interesting. Um, and I think it's kind of sensible. Like it's it's the limited risk category would be that I need to be transparent about what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, and still being transparent at the higher level is really important. I think also the other thing that that is, uh, I guess, important is if I assess, so the next level up, let's do the next level up and I'll come back to this point. So the next level up is high risk. This is the last of the, so we've gone from minimal, limited, we're now at high, but we're stopping short of unacceptable. That's mm -hmm. things in education justice system, immigration, law, right. uh, employment type stuff. Okay. So I guess my thing is there is this ambiguity I mentioned earlier. It's kind of interesting because it's like, well, if I assess myself as being limited risk, because I just kind of bend the interpretation and actually I'm high risk, then I'm exposing myself. So in a sense, there is no incentive to uh, lowball um, because this is enforceable, if I'm mischaracterizing myself and it can be shown that I sort of knowingly did that, then yes. I'm really, uh, I, I would literally be exposing myself to the, the full letter of the law. Yes, you would be. Um, yeah. And there are some hefty fines that you would receive if you had, um, yeah, essentially you're also going to get a mark that would, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name and it's like a French term in the EU. Yeah. Uh, maybe some of you all know this, but you would get this certification. If you do that uh, fraudulently, I believe there could be criminal charges for that. So that's also another concern. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a simple exercise. I think there was some work done where they took a hundred AI systems to try and work out at, at, at enterprise level where they fell. And I think in that study, um, like it was clear that about 60% of things could be relatively easily classified as prohibitive, high risk or low risk. But there was at least sort of almost 40% of things that people were really not kind of clear where they would go because you can't have a structure that's both general and completely definitive as to where things should Absolutely. go. So. But if an American company is facing this, so get back to our uh, earlier point, an American yeah. company saying, okay, well, I want to be compliant. I want to do the right thing. I want to be, you know, literally, they're not trying to be fraudulent. They're trying to do all the right things. But it, are they exposed by the fact that their subsidiaries in, the, in Europe could be hit? I mean, what if I'm just an American company and I'm doing this, but it's going into the EU, but I myself am just 
having my web servers or whatever sitting in in America? Is that just does that become irrelevant, or is it more that you could still face some kind of uh, punitive or other sort of damages? Oh no, the companies being... will still be held liable if anybody in the EU if they're offering their service and it's being used in the EU. Now, um, there's a really important point. I wanted to make there, and, and I actually, we we recently hosted at the Berkeley Law School, um, our annual AI Institute, and someone there mentioned they're, they're a smaller firm that builds these AI tools, and they, they said, essentially, we're letting the bigger players in this space deploy in these different use cases where it's unknown whether or not it would be deemed higher risk and sort of late, letting them take the fall. Um, to see if, because then, you know, if they're fined, um, you know, let them have the fine. So they're sitting on a lot of the capabilities that they have, and they're just not using them in certain areas right now because of the potential fear. So I guess that brings up a bigger question is, obviously, you're an expert in uh, in so many of these aspects, but if I could just get you to sort of speak broadly, do you feel that this wave of current uh Governance, guidance, and to a certain extent, lawmaking is going to have an adverse effect on innovation and uh, the roles that companies are able to play moving forward and that they're going to be limited? Or do you feel that things are running so fast that it's kind of irrelevant to, to the nature of all the cycles of innovation? No, I don't. And honestly, I think for a lot of those companies, like if you do something bad, you deploy a tool that causes harm uh, in the United States. We have other laws for recourse. It's not that these tools operate in this vacuum of established laws. They they must follow the rule of the law. And so for them, I think it's look, do your risk mitigation, save yourself the liability. Now, this idea of whether or not policy stifles innovation. Oftentimes, I think it's a pretty lazy argument that's put forward by industry with little backing on it. Uh, Actually, a lot of times, some of the most regulated industries are the most creative, the most innovative. One of those is climate and energy. In that area, we see great innovation. It's also very highly regulated. Uh, And then also for smaller firms, there's been so much tremendous work around setting up responsible AI governance strategies. Also, for example, larger companies implementing the NIST AI risk management framework that is set up essentially a blueprint for smaller companies to follow where they don't have to invest all of that capital in doing it. And in economics, right, that's called the late mover advantage. So I actually think smaller companies, if they set themselves up from the beginning to be a responsible AI company, they're going to be setting themselves up for success. Um, Obviously, there is a concern that in the U.S., if we do everything very, very responsibly and we're doing all of our data protection, and even in the EU, right, anybody developing an AI tool has to be GDPR compliant. We're still competing with, you know, China and where they have a much different understanding of data protection rules and what is and is not allowed. Uh, So I think it's more... I think it's important to do what's good for society and that can be good for business. Yeah. Yeah. I think though, if you are listening to this, you might say pretty reasonably that this is a lot of stuff to take in, but there's a whole class of people that we would just characterize as users that are saying, well, we've been talking about what the companies are going to do that are making the tools. But I know like a major animation studio that I was visiting where they were saying, we're just nervous about using any of these generative tools. In fact, we can't use them because we're somebody somewhere has just said, look, it's just too much the wild west at the moment to know whether it's safe to use these things. And it won't somehow come back to us later that we've got a copyright problem or some other problem we don't know about. So what's your advice, I guess, to the the artists and the users that are looking at these tools, are they going to be exposed similarly to what we've been discussing for the companies that are making the tools? Yeah, I think especially around this copyright issue, I mean, we're going to see these lawsuits move forward and we're going to get a lot more clarity. So in the United States, right, we, we have laws um, set by Congress or legislatures, but a lot of it is sort of battled out in the courtroom. Uh, we're, we're quite the litigious society. So we're going to start seeing some of these cases being I mean, that, decided. That shocks me to hear you say that America is a litigious society. 
It <laughs> is really. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, go on. Yeah, okay. I'm like, that's you know, right? We we do ex post, whereas the EU is more ex ante, putting in place um, guidance and restrictions to stop harm before it happens. Whereas in the US, we give people right, give them standing to sue if harm occurs which is a whole nother podcast episode to talk about. But yeah, I think for us in the in the US that it's going to get more clear over time. And also, even the EUAI Act does not specifically prescribe what these firms exactly have to do. There is that, you know, move like a little bit of wiggle room for the companies to demonstrate what compliance looks like. And so the companies are part of that process in working together. And I think over time, it's just, it's going to get clear what does responsible AI governance look like. And for the smaller firms, it's essentially, were you, did you practice due diligence in identifying and mitigating risk? And if you can demonstrate that you have done that, I think that goes really far. Yeah. And I think also there's a, dare I say it, almost like a PR aspect to this in that if companies can show that they're basically trying to do the right thing by both artists, creatives, and end users, that right. they stand to have a commercial advantage because in an, in an unknown area, in an area where it's in turmoil, if you feel like there are some safe harbors where people are trying to do the right things, you kind of like lean into those as being companies that you want to work with or, or products that you want to use Oh, exactly. because you don't know what's going on. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up Adobe. And I think this is a really good example. So Adobe is using their generative AI only using the images that they have the licenses for. But, you know, on the surface, that sounds great. However, I assume that those artists, when they generative AI wasn't around, it wasn't available five, 10 years ago, when those artists signed over their rights. I'm pretty certain it didn't say in there that we would be using this. You know, I'm talking as if I'm Adobe, we'll be using your images in a generative AI system in the future. No, essentially, they probably said something like, now that we own the license to your images, we reserve the right to do essentially whatever we want with it in perpetuity. And there has been some discussion about whether or not they need to renegotiate those terms uh, with those artists. And moving forward, whether or not those artists could actually opt in or opt out in their contract. Okay. And that's the specific case that we're getting into the generative AI stuff. But you touched on this a moment ago, and I, I didn't want to interrupt you when you said it, but there are just other laws that all come into effect mm -hmm. here. For example, forget it, generative AI or not, you can't use my likeness to promote a product without my permission. Forget AI or not. It's just, you just can't do that, right? If I happen to use AI to do it or use you know, a camera, a Photoshop. Like I, I, as a person on the street, can't be suddenly up on a billboard endorsing a product. That's just not allowed. Correct. That is not allowed. Yeah, you have a right over your likeness, right of publicity. So there's there are similarly, I mean, obviously there are horrendous things that happen where people uh, revenge porn, for example, with deep fakes, right? Mm -hmm. But again, slander and uh, all these other laws. So I, I, I'd be interested in your opinion, like how far are these existing laws that cover our rights away from AI, how far are they away from the AI debate? Are they completely applicable and just need to be used in, a, as you say, a, a court of law? Or do you think the laws need to be updated over those uh, traditionally non-AI laws to make them valid and useful in doing the things we've been talking about in an AI world? I think it depends on the area. Now, I know that some states have introduced legislation specifically focused on this non-consensual deepfake pornography and giving people the right over those, like if that were to happen, that they would have the right to be able to sue or reclaim damages from an individual who had created that content. But essentially, for example, if you're building a, a tool that you're using to screen job applicants and it's using machine learning and it just happens to consistently filter out young women of color, well, that violates equal employment opportunity laws. But the issue there is there isn't this compelled transparency right now. A company that's using these tools doesn't have to tell the applicants that it has used that tool. So then end users never even know. They don't know that this machine learning tool was even used in the first place. So how in the world would they be able to push back against it? 
and exercise their rights under an equal employment opportunity law. And we have a, a student working with us right now at CoDirect, uh, the AI Policy Hub. We have a student who is working on this very issue of how do you give end users the right to be able to sort of audit these systems and see if it is making any biased decisions? Yeah, it's an incredibly hard problem. Um, we've seen that also. There were examples with the uh, judicial sentencing recommendation systems that, uh, you know, the argument was that they were uh, biasing their sentencing recommendations, but there was a, an argument against being able to show any of the workings of how they came to those recommendations. And yeah, I mean, if your life is going to depend on a computer simulation, you know, that inherently it feels like you should have some chance of seeing what's going on there, or at least knowing yeah, what's going exactly. on there. Yeah. Exactly. And I know that there's been legislation proposed at the federal level. And there's a Berkeley law professor who has um, been providing really sage guidance on that. Um, to make sure that any of these systems that are used, that individuals who are either convicted of um, or are sentenced or even, you know, being reviewed for a crime, that they have the right to be able to understand what's happening with these systems. You, you discussed earlier that you you sound optimistic, but you're pessimistic. Can I get mm -hmm. one read from you in your extensive work and and uh view on the system at the moment. How well do you think those that are making these laws and those that are uh, producing these guidelines, how how well informed do you think they are? How well informed can they be given how fast it's moving? Do you have confidence that there's uh, you know, a good hand on the wheel or do you feel like uh, that it's, it's a very specific tech area and it's really hard to even have people understand what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Congress and legislatures, they're not a monolith. I mean, they're composed of people from various backgrounds. And so, of course, there are experts within members of the legislatures and Congress, people who even have computer science degrees and who I think have a pretty firm understanding. Uh, of course, the space is moving really fast. And even the developers of these generative AI systems, they don't actually know exactly what's happening with these systems and why sometimes they're making these. Um, you know, responses and generating certain types of content. We're all learning right now. And I think it, instead of us casting any sort of um, shame on members of Congress or legislature for not knowing, let's all get together and fully understand this technology. I think part of the problem is that we've had this hyped discussion on on either side, either that AI is a dystopian tool that yeah, you know, robots replacing workers, the death of creativity, all the way to it's a utopian tool that's going to solve all of society's ills. And that distracts us. It distracts us from the real discussions that we need to have about its actual technical capabilities and limitations and what policies we need to put in place to better ensure society can harness the technology for its benefits. So and one last thing I'll say is please check out our show, Tech Hype at techhype.org because in each episode I sit down with an expert we debunk misunderstandings around emerging tech so you can better understand what is actually going what is AI? what is quantum computing what is all of this um it's so funny you said that because I was about to say exactly the same thing because people often say to me like what do you think you know we should do like generally speaking in this area uh avoiding problems with you know bad actors and people doing the wrong thing and I say like the first line of defense is an informed public the first and best line of defense, because, you know, if you look at a video that's been completely faked, um, it could lead you to the wrong conclusion. But the similarly, you could do that with a still image. But because we know of Photoshop, we understand what's possible with photographic manipulation. If I saw you at a Ku Klux Klan randomly, I'd say, well, there's no way that's Brady, that's been faked. It's just I'd no question about it. I don't even have to look. And so similarly, I think that's the case that we have to think about with um, with these new technologies that an informed public that's better able to judge is, is centrally um, what we need to focus on in addition to anything else that we're doing. And that's why I was saying that uh, it's so good that you do tech hype because this is exactly what's needed, a, a good, uh, fairly nuanced discussion of what's going on so that people are informed and can make their own decisions. Exactly. And as the old adage says, knowledge is power. 
So thanks so much, time for taking mm-hmm. uh, this journey with us today and walking through this stuff. I know that it's uh, complicated for people that are listening, but it is, as you say, an area that probably will become clearer over time. Um, Absolutely. And it is something that is so important to get an understanding of. And your insights are brilliant. And I, again, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. Well, thanks for that. I found the discussion really interesting. Uh, There were some issues that I certainly wasn't aware of, things like some of the smaller companies being actually afraid of releasing their technology due to legal issues that have been undecided and some of the uncertainty um, regarding that and as well as government regulations. So lots of stuff covered in that and it's such a rapidly changing um, field that I'm sure in another six months, things will be very, very different. Well, thank you again, Brandy, so much for taking time to chat with us. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.